Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I am the Bill Arnold part of that sentence. And we're going to have a wonderful hour with Dr. Mark Muska. Afternoon. Well, Aren't no, you the afternoon? I am the afternoon. <laughs> you know, why did you turn his mic on so soon? I'm trying to be professional. <laughs> because he's Mark Muska. I know. Yes. It's Mark Muska Day, by it the is. way. Mm-hmm. Officially it's, declared. It's been Thank officially you. declared. Thank you. So, Dr. Mark Muska in the studio, which means uh, fire up your questions. Let us know what they are. You can ask anything. Uh, maybe you've been stuck on a passage in the Bible that you don't understand. You have uh, been in a discussion with somebody, and you went back and forth, and you'd like to get more clarification on, on any passage in Scripture. Uh, Mark will, will take it on. We'll just uh, handle anything you send our way. You can call us, and you can come on the air and ask personally if you like or you can send a text. Those are the two options today. We've got Sierra in the uh, phone room ready to take your call, and you can ask Mark directly, and that uh, means I have to talk to him less. So that's always good. What? No, I'm just being playful. You don't want to talk? I love talking to you. Yeah. You're like my favorite something, favorite guest. Well, we're friends. I know we're friends. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's the plan for this hour. Uh, I've got questions coming in already, which I'm looking forward to grilling Mark with. So... Uh, Uh, 877-933-2484. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Hi, I'm John Stone Street from Breakpoint and the Colson Center. Few men have changed history as much as William Wilberforce. After he received Christ, Wilberforce began a crusade to abolish the slave trade in Great Britain. His actions motivated abolitionists in our country, too. For Wilberforce, Christianity meant action, even at the cost of health and comfort. Godly pastors serve others before they serve themselves. And during Pastor Appreciation Month, make sure you let yours know how great an impact they make on your life. Declaring that God's love echoes in the depths of who we are. Radio, worshiping with you. All right, we've got Dr. Mark Muska in studio, so let us know what your questions are. They're already coming in. We already have a caller on the line. Matt is calling in from Burnsville. Matt, welcome to the show. We have a question for Mark. Hi, Matt. I do. Hi, Dr. Muska. Um, hi, Bill. Thanks for having me on you the bet. show here. Uh, so it's not uh, necessarily digging into scripture; it's more in regard to witnessing and evangelism. So, a uh, little context: I went out to uh, lunch with my boss today, and in the midst of our conversation, I found myself, uh, I guess, essentially witnessing to my boss. And uh, that's pretty good. Yeah, it was. It was great. Yeah, I was really grateful for the experience. But um, we kind of, I, I found myself in a situation where. Um, he kind of essentially got to the, the point of the conversation where it was like, yeah, well, you know, Matt, I've kind of found that if, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, he kind of was fine with this, you know, what 
was going on with his life. He didn't necessarily, you know, see the need for God in his life. And so I kind of went into, you know, fulfillment and discovering your identity in Christ and this and that. But I, you know, kind of didn't really feel like I was able to provide good insight or a good answer as to the necessity to it. And I didn't really have um, scripture that I leaned into to back me up. So I guess I was just kind of curious um, what you what you guys would say uh, in regard to that. Yeah, it's a great question. I think sometimes when people are sharing their faith, they, they get stumped by questions like that. And this is uh, this is something that you have to take seriously. He uh, doesn't see and doesn't feel the need. Uh, for, just between you and me, Matt, uh, that is a man who is uh, due for a catastrophe in his life. And then what is he going to do? I don't think I'd ever say that to him. I might say it a little nicer about... Well, what happens when the wheels do fall off? What happens with the un, unanticipated thing where your your company goes under and mm. you've got nothing and your family hates you and uh, you're all by yourself? Uh, there's uh, there's the ups and the downs to life, and so he uh, may uh, he may consider that that it's not like God is some crutch when things go bad, but he brings context to life in the, both the good and the bad. I like quoting from Job, you know, everything fell apart for Job, but he says, you know, that uh, he will uh, bless the Lord, uh, whether he's, uh, uh, even though God may slay me, yet I will still uh, bless him. So uh, that, uh, even when the th- times are down, uh, that's a that's an encouraging uh, thing to, to do. So um, I don't know. It's, uh, it's awfully hard, Matt, because uh, in these kind of situations, I just try to do my best and then allow God to do the work in the heart that might be secret. Who knows what's going on in your boss's heart? He might have just been right. trying to brush you off today because he didn't want to get personal. So he thinks that'll get rid of you if he says, well, I just don't need God. And so who knows uh, what's happening there? Uh, so you may want to uh, you know put him on your prayer list for sure, but then also... Uh, Real specifically, sometimes I I say to people, well, are you interested to know if God is there? You may not sense a need for him, but uh, one of the uh, challenge prayers that I'll throw out there to a non-Christian sometimes is to say to them, uh, why don't you talk to God and ask him if he is there and if he's interested in you uh, to make it it known to you in a way that you won't mistake as something else Mm -hmm. that's that's certain, that that, it's something you can't deny. And uh, give them a little challenge like that to say you might be missing out on a whole different aspect of life because you're just kind of content here now in the situation you're in. I don't know. That, that uh, That's just striking me off the top of my head. But it's awfully difficult when we try to presume to know the heart and what's going on inside. That's that's the Lord's business. We put the message out there and then try to answer questions the best we can. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. That's a really good yeah. answer. Is Mark, it? oh my, that, yeah. yeah. I mean, we mm-hmm. could close in prayer right now if we wanted to hmm. and just have that hour be over. I mean, if you want. I don't know. We've got another 50 minutes. We should probably keep moving then. Sure. Yeah, all right, cool. All right, here's a verse uh, that I've memorized, Hebrews 4.12. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me, because I've recited this a million times, but what were the listeners understanding this verse to be to mean? Why when don't it you says, tell it to their people? The so Word of know. God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even Mm -hmm. to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Mm -hmm. Now, the listener would be hearing that saying, okay, dividing soul and spirit, what does that mean? And joints and marrow, what does that mean? 
I think they're, they're euphemisms or figures of speech to say uh, dividing right down to the very core okay. of what we are that uh, we can get into some big conversation about the immaterial part of us as human beings. We've got a physical, material body, but what about the immaterial part? We have mm-hmm. a soul, a spirit, a heart, a conscience, a mind, emotions, a will. There's all kinds of terms we use for that non-physical part of us. But I don't think that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get at there. He's he's talking about that two-edged sword of God's Word will penetrate down to the core, into those secret center places in our lives again brilliant and man but that's threatening to you're you nailing it because today. it will it will it will clobber you yeah that that's what we call the conviction of god's spirit where he just nails you sometimes it, it's a coincidental thing apparently that uh, happens and you're just right there mm-hmm. uh, experiencing something by coincidence so to speak but it is not you, you know it isn't it's mm-hmm. it's something where he's getting your attention you, you've had the spirit wrap you on the forehead before, haven't you? I mean, yeah. that, oh, that's, yeah. uh, that's just something you can't describe real well, but boy, you sure can experience it. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Ron's on the, uh, actually, is it Lindsay? Yeah, Lindsay's on the line from White Bear Lake. Hello, Lindsay. Hi, how's it going? Hi, Lindsay. Doing great. Wonderful. I just had a question for, on behalf of my five-year-old daughter, she is struggling with um, feeling the weight of pressure she puts on herself. She kind of seems to be struggling with this perfectionism or maybe performance mentality. Mm -hmm. And we're looking for verses to fill her heart with so she can fall back on that truth and know her worth. Yeah, boy, that's a. I'd have to think about that one for a while, Lindsay, because there's things that come to mind as far as peace of mind, but then this is this is more complicated than that. When a, a child like this starts to set standards for themselves that might be unrealistic, yeah. and they uh, they they're achievers, and probably she will be here for the rest of her life. But that has a dark side to it as well because of, of never finding contentment uh, where exactly. where you're at, and so. I'm uh, I'm drawing a blank right now as far as specific verses that would be of comfort or encouragement to her. I, I'm thinking about and how... you know, we can pray with her and kind of wait to see what comes to mind. Um, and if anybody listening wants to lift up a five-year-old, her name is Juliet. And um, yeah, she just, I think, being an identical twin, <laughs> I think she's surrounded with a lot of competition in her life. So... It's uh, it's kind of a, it's tough to see a young kid battle with those type of feelings. Yep, and it's probably not going to get better with age. It's probably going to get uh, more intense in, if it's not right. if it's not addressed. So, yeah, right. I'm thinking about the Apostle Paul talking about you know financial contentment in Philippians chapter four, where he says that you know I found uh, I found contentment whether I have much or little. Uh, the secret to that contentment is uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me in Philippians 4. So uh, that Amen. that type of verse, but it doesn't quite fit this with your daughter. So I'm, I'm, But uh, it's at least a truth that she can, if we can help her with memorizing, I just want her to be able to, she'll fall back on what's in her heart, you know? Yep. So so maybe, and that's funny because Philippians was, was a, a place I was going to start digging, so that's Mm-hmm. That's maybe confirmation there. Yeah. So, 
Uh, why don't we just pray for your daughter right now? Uh, Lord, we do ask that you would uh, oversee in this young girl's heart, even so she, she's so young yet, but yet uh, some uh, things are rising here, and we pray, God, you'd bring her the comfort and reassurance that only you can bring to a child's heart uh, to uh, uh, be content it, where she is and not to, uh, not to uh, demand too much from herself and especially this competitive thing, Lord, with her twin, that the two of them can love each other and appreciate their differences as well as their similarities. So we're asking for you to intervene in those secret places in this little girl's heart. And so uh, we're asking with confidence, though, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Lindsay, for calling. Thank you so much. Really, really, have a great day. Really nice to have you on the show. Yeah, and thank you to Dr. Muska. You were my professor back in 07, and I still have all my A.W. Tozer books. <laughs> wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> so thank you for that. Yeah, that's yeah. The good stuff, isn't it, that those words it live? It is, it's good yep. stuff. He doesn't that's always great. make you, you feel real it. good about yourself, but he, you benefit <laughs> from it. So. It's a slap in the face, but it's a good one. <laughs> it is, it is. Thanks, Lindsay. Yeah, that's so great. we're going to take, take, take a little break. When we come back, keep your questions uh, coming. You can call and ask Mark on uh, the phone, or you can send me a text, and I'll ask on your behalf, 877-933-2484. If you have a really hard question, Mark will take it, and if you have a really, really easy one, I think I might be able to take it. Be back in a minute. is in studio let us know what your questions are feel free to call and ask them yourself or send me a text and we'll ask on your behalf 877-93-FAITH 877-933-2484 so mark does rabbi mean any religious teacher beats me i mean it's a it's a hebrew term so yeah it's a it is a teacher but I'm not sure how it crosses over. There's so many similarities in language with some of those close uh, languages to Hebrew. So Arabic, I'm not quite sure what the what the word would be there. But um, yeah, I'm I'm not sure. That's outside of my domain. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was just uh, uh, curious how we're so interested in using original, understanding Greek and original Hebrew terms, and I didn't know how. Jewish people refer to themselves as rabbis when they Mm -hmm. get ordained, right? I'm not sure about that, exactly what the procedure is for someone to carry the the, uh, title Mm -hmm. of rabbi in Judaism. In Christian traditions, most of the time when someone has been ordained as a minister, uh, that is when they begin using the title reverend, that uh, that denotes that they have been ordained. But uh, I'm not sure about mm-hmm. the process in Judaism and exactly what it is. For ordination in Christian traditions, it can vary widely as far as what is required. When a church ordains someone as a pastor or as a minister, what they're doing is they're giving them their stamp of certification or approval that this person is a a, a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and this church now is associating themselves with that person. And oftentimes it's not just the church, but the denomination that they're in. So someone is ordained 
as a Baptist pastor or ordained as a Methodist pastor. So it carries that association. But uh, some mm-hmm. churches, they're very cavalier about it, and they'll ordain people just pretty much if they're asked to ordain. Uh, but then others make it very strict uh, uh, procedure that goes through for ordination because the church realizes that their name now is going to be associated with this person, and mm-hmm. they want to make sure to check them out to make sure their uh, teaching that they believe is sound teaching and that they uh, are able to represent the Lord Jesus adequately. So it's not just something flippant. Uh, uh, one of the more rigorous processes is in the evangelical free churches uh, procedure uh, where th- they go through several steps of uh, pretty grueling uh, uh, steps for uh, ordination. Uh, I've served a, on a couple of ordination councils, Bill, where uh, often uh, times uh, churches and denominations will have a time where they can question a candidate for ordination, and it's pretty much anything goes, mm. where they can ask them about doctrinal issues and what their stances are. They can ask them about contemporary issues in society or in the church, and get their stances, but it's all to familiarize themselves with the person. So there's not any secrets being withheld here that uh, the person, oops, you know, they don't believe in the deity of Christ or something like that. Right. You, you don't want to ordain someone like that if if that comes out. So uh, it, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting process. Uh, most Christians have no idea of what uh, goes into an ordination process. Mm-hmm. So do we know, did Jesus have a sense of humor? Oh, did he, yeah. Did he ever say or do anything funny? There may be a uh, there may be a scriptural reference to this that I'm just not aware of, but it's something I've thought about for a while now. Yeah, I think it's. Is this somebody calling this? Yeah, in? this yeah. is a, a um, listener. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I like to think of Jesus with his uh, dry humor mm-hmm. or his wit. Uh, there's a couple of beauties out there uh, that that just uh, stands out. I'm thinking about when uh, Jesus is ministering with the apostles. And, you know, uh, Jesus had a lot of patience with these guys. It seemed like they were a chapter behind the story half the time as far as figuring out what Jesus is talking about. And uh, one of my favorite pieces of just dry wit here is that uh, in Mark chapter 10, that Jesus is dealing with the... Um, with the disciples, and he's teaching them that uh, he's he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. And then uh, after, he's, he talks about them dying. Uh, uh, James and John, the two disciples, the sons of Zebedee, the fishermen, they came and asked Jesus a question. And I'm not sure if it's in this passage, but these two he labeled as the sons of thunder. Mm-hmm. And there's got to be some wit in that. Well, there know? has to be. But, as, you know, the sons of thunder here, you know, <laughs> uh, they're mm-hmm. going to they're gonna take over the world or something like that. So uh, he, can, he can get at some very witty kinds of dry humor. It's not the slap your knee, you know, yeah. gut busting kind of ha ha ha, isn't that funny? But he definitely, I think God has a terrific sense of humor. I mean, just for it's most of us, if we just look right. in the mirror, we can see his sense of humor yeah. that, uh, that he's... Uh, speak for yourself. Yeah, I, I am. Yeah. Uh, that uh, it's, it's, uh, it's just not, uh, not that outward kind of uh, obvious kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, you know, kids are drawn to Jesus. Mm-hmm. So I would think if you were a playful, interactive person, kids would be enjoying you more, right? So I, Maybe, I picture yeah. him as being this mm-hmm. fun-hearted sort of playful, big smile, enjoying yeah. these kids. I wonder with Jesus, with the children too, if it wasn't that he took them seriously, huh? that he really talked to them. Yeah, there you go. And he looked in their eyes and he didn't treat them like kids, Yeah, but he treated them like people. 
And right. that usually works with a kid. That they, they like that. They're drawn to it. I like. All right. Um, here's a one that just came in. Sure. Was riding an Uber this weekend, and the driver was Muslim, who's been married to a Christian for 20 years. He said he attends church to support his wife sometimes. He was saying something about the Bible being changed and rewritten to have different Bibles. I think wow. he was talking about the New Living Testament, ESV, etc. But the Quran has never changed, and that's why he believes it is true and right over the Bible. Mm-hmm. Did say how they believe Jesus died and rose and is coming again, but they just think he's a prophet, not the Son of God. Right. Mm-hmm. So they're accusing us of having Bible that a Bible that changes. Yeah, the uh, I don't think the Bible changes, but we have to recognize that we don't have the original writings of the Bible, and nobody does. And as much as this Muslim like may like to say that that they have the original now in the modern uh, Quran, uh, that comes with a couple different caveats, if I understand this correctly, because of a Quran-believing Muslim rejects any translation mm-hmm. of the Quran other than Arabic. Mm-hmm. Arabic is the language that it was written in, and so it's illegitimate to have an English translation of the Quran. It's not the true book mm-hmm. for Islam. But I don't have enough expertise in this bill, but I would suspect that the Quran has been uh, gone through some revision over time as far as updating it into more modern uh, of Arabic, Otherwise, they face the the problem that we face with the King James Version of the Bible where you get into antiquated English and it uh, it's hard to understand the expressions that were popular in the 1600s when King James, uh, when the King James Bible came out. And so if the Quran dates back to the 600s or 700s, uh, that's uh, 1,400 years ago, and you know that the language has evolved. And so I'm curious. I don't know. I, I need to find out how much revision in the Arabic language has taken place, because if it hasn't, uh, then they have a significant uh, uh, challenge there to understand what the Quran is saying in modern Arabic terms. Mm-hmm. So really interesting. Now, I, Mark, I've got some great questions coming in, but I can't cover it in the time we've got left before we go to a No, yes, break. no answers, huh? Yeah, so um, I probably will have to uh, suggest that we go to break here coming up in about a minute, but um, some of these questions will not be short answers. Okay. So let me just uh, have our listeners know that uh, please keep these, uh, these calls coming and also the text messages. We're going to have a a full solid half hour coming up with Mark after the break. Uh, But we are, um, I can't get Mark started and then cut him off. So uh, we'll take a break and we'll be back uh, with lots more with Dr. Mark Muska. Again, 877-933-2484. I see David's on the line uh, waiting. So David, if you can be patient for 90 seconds, we'll get you on right when we come back.
Dr. Mark Musk is in the studio. You can ask uh, any question you like. David on the line. He's been patient, waiting to come on the show and ask Mark a question. David, welcome. Hi, David. Hi, Mark. My question is, uh, Jesus was with the disciples one day, and he said to them, whatever you bind on earth, I will bind in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth, I will loose in heaven. And my question is, what is it that we are to bind and loose, and how do we go about doing that? Yeah, I think it's it's uh, it's a good question, David. Um, Jesus doesn't explain himself fully, but from the context here, it seems like he's talking about the the things that are being determined in heaven. Uh, these disciples, these apostles, have the ability to declare this on earth, and so things that are bound are bound. They're loosed. They're loosed. So, uh, the two passages where this shows up, uh, they're right next to each other. Is a uh, Matthew sixteen nineteen is where Jesus has just talked to Peter about him being the rock, and upon him I will build my church. And then in verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So he is delegating this authority of Peter to be able to say, uh, the uh, to bind or to loose things on heaven, to make declarations that are authoritative. And then in Matthew 18, uh, in verse 18, he uses the same expression, but this is in the context of uh, Jesus giving advice about a sinning brother or sister. If they sin, uh, go to them. I'll just read the passage, starting in verse 15, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two or more with you, so that the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and as a tax gatherer. And then here comes this verse, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So, uh, and then the verse after that, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. And that seems to be the same thing, that they have the authority here to make these pronouncements, that this person is to be put out of the church if they're to be treated as a non-Christian, if they will not repent of their sin after these three stages of of a confrontation about their sin. So uh, I, I'm not sure. Is that answering the question, do you think? is uh, Does that sound... Uh, I think it. I think there's more to it than that. There may be. I think, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think that if we, it's been my experience, if I see something going on that I don't think is godly, I think we have an uh, opportunity. He said prior to that, Mark, he said, and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. I mean, it's kind of like saying, I'm giving you the keys to the business. Yeah. <laughs> and whatever you find on earth, you can, I'll bind in the spirit realm for you. Yeah. And so it's it's kind of giving him authority to move things, to change things. Mm-hmm. And I think the church needs to wake up a little bit and understand that further so that we can move and walk and do uh, some things that are hampering us through the spirit realm. We can take authority over them and we can uh, bind them from from being from using people here on earth as puppets. Yeah. Yep. And they're just not aware of what's going on, and we can bind that activity, and he will bind it. And the spirit realm won't have any ability to to um, interact or to affect 
the things that are happening here on Earth. That's yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to track with you all the way with that one, David, because um, uh, a factor that we have to take in here is that Jesus is speaking to the apostles here. He is not giving this as a general teaching to the church. And so we'd have to have a discussion about this as far as the application of this uh, to everyone having this ability to be able to bind things on Earth and they would be bound in heaven. Uh, that is a pretty good discussion to hold, and I would be cautious about applying it in that kind of a way for all of us to be able to do that type of thing. Uh, about the closest I'd get to that, just right off the top of my head, is if church leadership, so a council of elders or bishops in the church or deacons in the church, come to these uh, conclusions about someone being unrepentant of sin, then perhaps as a as a decision of the church, but... I'm not sure if we can take it that far to uh, be uh, personally, as Christians in the church, uh, binding and loosing things on heaven, in heaven and on earth. And so I'd, I'd have to, we'd have to talk about that more. Those, those are tricky questions as far as the extent of the application of passages like this. All right. Thank you, David, for calling in. Mark, uh, I've got a uh, passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, mm-hmm. verse Six talks about a woman covering her head. Yep. Uh, she might as well have her hair cut off, but if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk about this this idea of, of head coverings as a sign. Yeah, this, uh, Bill, this is one of the um, most difficult passages to interpret in First okay. Corinthians. Uh, because he, uh, Paul is delving into issues of of worship and uh, the way that we we uh, uh, present ourselves, the way we dress and uh, our hairstyle and head coverings and that when we gather as a church, as a gathering of uh, Christians in the name of Jesus. And so uh, Paul is wading into this now and saying there's a real difference. At the beginning of the passage, he says that it's proper for a uh, a man to when he prays or prophesies in the church, so when he's engaged in the ministry in the gathering of the church, that if he prays or prophesies with his head uncovered, that uh, he disgraces his head. And then uh, Paul comes next then to the passage you read to say, and then if a woman prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, she disgraces her head. So in the eyes of Paul in this first century setting here in Corinth, uh, they were to... Uh, show the distinction between themselves as men and women by these head coverings, whether they had their head covered or their head uncovered. But I think you can probably see the hornet's nest of issues coming into this when you get into something that looks like it has a specific cultural context to it in the first century. And is this is this binding for the church uh, uh, throughout time? Is this something that needs to be applied the same today as back then? There are some churches and denominations where the women are encouraged to uh, wear some sort of a head covering or veil or something in their hair uh, to cover their head. We aren't even sure, though, interpreting this, Bill, if he, Paul is talking about an actual hat or something on their head or a scarf or something, or if he's just talking about their long hair, mm-hmm. that their hair will cover their head if they have long hair. And so that's very difficult to interpret. Uh, the, there, uh, There's a long tradition of this with men in the church that even yet today, as much as people are so super casual in church gatherings, most of the time when prayer takes place in a church gathering, the men will doff their hat when 
prayer is taking place. And they're doing that because of this passage, hmm. that this this tradition has been going on a long time. They may not know they're doing it because of that passage, but they've been taught men don't uh, worship with your hat on, that that's, that's improper. So uh, I think we, we have to be careful with this one because uh, Paul seems to back off in this whole in this whole discussion about the importance of it, if people are going to get contentious and argumentative about it, because at the end of the whole conversation about head coverings here in 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen, listen to what Paul says. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor has the churches of God to say we are not going to get into some divisive argument about this. Mm-hmm. It isn't important enough, but he's giving his view on that. In the day and age we live in today, though, with gender identity being a huge issue in our society and now in the church as well, this whole distinction between men and women is a very important discussion to have in the church. And I, in my circles that I run in, Bill, everybody seems to be running for cover with this and not really talking about wow. it the way they need to. Mm-hmm. And there are some churches and denominations that are coming out with statements and they're hammering out their beliefs and their stances on this stuff, but it is nothing short of explosive as far as the world we live in to, to, uh, uh, for Christians to take a stand in these areas. Mm-hmm. Another uh, caller named oh. Deanna, she called from Sioux Falls and says, what does Christianity and Halloween have in common according to the Bible? I don't know about anything yeah. in the Bible, but there's all kinds of uh, church tradition with mm-hmm. this. Uh, the term Halloween is a mixture a mixture of two words of of hallowed evening, because this uh, on October 31st was the evening before, kind of like Christmas Eve is to Christmas. It was the evening before All Saints Day on November 1st, and that was. Uh, that's something that the church has has uh, commemorated for centuries in certain traditions that they will have All Saints Day. And so uh, this was a time uh, before that that churches would practice certain preparations for that All Saints Day, but then it turned into more uh, superstition and folklore kinds of things to be able to um, uh, connect this with uh, spirits. And uh, in particular, I believe it's an Irish, it's either an Irish or Scottish tradition that got joined to this early on, way back in church history, where they considered this to be a time where the spiritual domain and the material domain that we live in are closest together. And so there'd be crossover of spirits into our domain. So ghosts and witches and magic and all this kind of stuff was emphasized. So, uh, but most of this is a result of uh, tradition, uh, superstition at times, uh, folklore, uh, those kinds of things. So I don't think you're going to see much in the mm-hmm. Bible about this. Mm-hmm. Other than I should say that the things having to do with the occult and occultic practices are categorically uh, condemned in the scriptures. There is no question about that, that we are, uh, we can uh, state that with certainty that God really frowns on any kind of occultic thing. And what I'm talking about there is magic, uh, sorcery, divination, spiritism, uh, those types of things are, are forbidden in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Mark, Jesus started his public ministry when he was 30. Is yep. it 
possible that his disciples were all around that same age too? That's a good question. I've just been in this because in my New Testament class, we're finishing up the New Testament this week, and we were talking about the Apostle John. And John's an interesting case because he writes Revelation probably in the 90s of the first century. And if we take back with Jesus being about 30 years old and his public ministry started in the 30s of the first century, uh, if John was the same age as Jesus, he was one old man by the time he wrote Revelation. He was well into his 90s, most likely. And so there's a pretty good reason to speculate that John may have been a much younger man. And that might be be the reason why he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And at the Last Supper, he's leaning on Jesus uh, very affectionately there. Uh, They had a a very close kind of kinship there in uh, this scene in the Last Supper. And so I told my students today, uh, John might have been someone in his late teens or early 20s, just Mm -hmm. about the age that they're at. And so that made him think a little bit that how would you like to be called to come and uh, fish for men, (laughs) uh, uh, you know, here at Northwestern or something like that. Spectacular. Wouldn't that be something? Oh, my. We don't know. Uh, Peter, the tradition there is is that Peter is a little bit older man. Mm -hmm. Uh, James and John, probably younger, sons of Zebedee working for their dad. But we don't really have much to go on there. Mm Mm-hmm. Let me take a break. When we come back, more with Dr. Mark Muska. If you have questions, let us know. 877-933-2484. You can call and ask the question live on the air, or you can just send me a text and I'll read it on your behalf. Either way, we'd love to get your questions. We've got time for a couple more. 877-933-2484. is in the studio. You know, it seems like every time Mark comes in, I get a handful of questions about uh, sexual purity and some of the associated questions around that, Mark. Um, yeah. You know, if you're... Well, we live in a sexualized society, yes, we do. Bill. You know, I mean, it's all just blaring at us, you know. Yes, 24-7. When, well, when you sell something like laundry detergent and it's sexualized, you know we got a problem, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I absolutely. mean, that, that's just weird. But when we consider some of the surrounding, um, if you're a celibate person and you struggle with the idea of self-stimulation, um, mm-hmm. this is a, a, I get this question asked every time you come on. I always seem to find a way of ignoring it, but I'm not going to ignore it today. Yeah, th- well, this is one of the things that has really changed in our lifetime, Bill, that back when I was a kid, I'm sure it was the same for you too, that uh, sex just wasn't talked about that much publicly. Mm-hmm. And now it's like everything gets out there with some of these uh, live TV shows. Uh, the disgusting. Uh, Mari Povich yeah. and some of this kind of thing. It's like everything is out there and right. I'm, I'm hearing things I don't want to hear, you know. <laughs> It's too graphic. It's too explicit. So we've really seen a change. So uh, I think we have to talk about these kind of things, especially with our young people, because if we don't, what they're going to get for information is going to come from the world around them. And usually uh, that's twisted. 
that it isn't coming from the right context. Can I attempt to just give what I think is the right context for sex and sure. sexual activity that this uh, this uh, reality that we are sexual beings, this is a fabulous gift that God has given to the human race. It is meant to bring together a man and a woman uh, for uh, a couple of very explicit purposes. One of them is for enjoyment and bonding between that man and woman under the auspices of marriage and the commitments that they've made to each other. And then the second purpose for it is procreation, that we multiply as human beings. It's the first real command that the humans are given in Genesis, is to Mm -hmm. go and multiply and fill the earth. And so this is a great gift that God has given, and it is a smear for people to accuse Christians of being against sex or thinking sex is dirty or any of these kinds of things. It is a beautiful and wonderful gift, but as such, Bill, it has to be protected. And I wish the church would take this more seriously to say it is a special, almost mystical gift that a husband and wife have with each other to express their love and affection for one another within that commitment that they have made to each other that they are together and neither one's going anywhere. Mm-hmm. That within that, this is a a profoundly wonderful and intimate bonding experience that a married couple has to express them that selves that way sexually. And so we have to we have to start there. And the primary thing that I would propose to you, in fact, we could talk about it if you wanted to, from First Corinthians seven, where Paul gives advice about married couples and sexual expression, that the goal of a married couple, a man and a woman, when they are engaged in sexual activity with one another, their goal is to please their spouse and not themselves. Mm-hmm. That that's their number one goal. So that those husbands, they should set their minds on how they can engage in sexual activity with their wife in a way that will please her. And that's his priority, not his own pleasure, but hers. Mm -hmm. And the same thing for the woman, that whatever will please him, that's what her priority is. That it's one of the most profound selflessness kinds of calls that we have uh, in human existence, because it is a very strong urge and tug. And uh, I don't understand it really well, how it works with women. I've tried to ask my wife a bunch of questions about all this with sex drive and that. I still don't get it very well, but I understand it for men. And this is an enormously powerful draw and urge and passion that we have as men for sexual expression. And so sometimes uh, we are tempted many times, especially in overly sexualized society, to express that in ways that are going to cheapen and and taint this wonderful gift that God has given us. So Mm -hmm. my words for the person out there that is single is that you take the steps necessary to remain uh, pure in the sense that you are not engaging in any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage, period. Uh, Whether it's self-stimulation or sleeping around with others or uh, just uh, getting into sexual stimulation short of sexual intercourse, you know, a lot of times the edges will be cut around the Mm -hmm. sides and that type of thing, that this is something that we need to call our single people 
in the church to abstinence in every form, to mm-hmm. to look away from that and to commit themselves to it. I know I'm putting a huge burden on these people, but then I'm not going to let the married people off the hook either, because even when married, it is a great temptation to be looking at others around you and having sexual ideas and sexual fantasy. And so to remain true to your spouse and him only for the women and her only for the men, that's a terrific challenge as well in uh, in marriage. This is, uh, I, I, I guess I've said it, I've, I've been preaching too much. That's here, okay. But, you but did it, a nice job. If we start with that, though, Bill, then all this other stuff like self-stimulation and uh, uh, fornication, mm-hmm. adultery, mm-hmm. all of this, it finds its context. And we need to do better in the church to advocate for this husband-wife within marriage, the joy of this sexual expression. Okay. Let's get uh, Charles on the line. He's calling in from Minneapolis. Charles, welcome to the show. Hi, Charles. Hello, Charles. Hi. Thanks for being patient. Hi. No problem. Um, You got my question? Nope. Uh, I did get it, but you can ask it if you like. Okay, I'll be be glad to ask it. My question is, if if the... um, the idea that Jesus turned water into wine, and most Christians um, assigning to that same concept that wine is a beverage that Jesus turned uh, water into wine, was it actual alcoholic beverage that he turned water into wine, or was it non-alcoholic? Yep, that's a, that's a good question, Charles. I don't think we can answer it because the Scripture doesn't uh, state it that uh, this could have been new wine in the sense that it had not had the opportunity to ferment, and so it might have been something analogous to grape juice, but it could have been a well-seasoned wine. I tend to go with the second one, that it was alcoholic because of the reaction of the host and the steward, where they said uh, they reprimanded the steward of, of, you know, why did you save the best wine for last? And so that, that... tends to have me lean toward the idea that it did have alcoholic content to it. Although, uh, if I get my facts right about this, the alcoholic content in the ancient world of wine like this was much lower than it is today in the kind of uh, wine beverages that are for sale in liquor stores and that kind of thing. So, but uh, I, I don't see, uh, I don't see a, a problem with that, that this had alcoholic content to it. Yes. Thank you, Charles. Yes. Um, in, in in addition to what you're saying, why would Jesus condemn wine that was given to him on the cross to to bear his pain? Mm-hmm. And nor, on the other hand, in the early part of the Bible, nor was um, was 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 drunk with wine. You know, when he came off the ark. Yep. You know. Yep. Why, why would Jesus allow it when? In, in, the, in, the, in on the cross, you know, during the last few hours or, or minutes of him dying, he didn't allow wine to be given to him. Yes, th- that, um, I'm not sure I, I, if I'm correlating this with Noah at all. Uh, I think there's much more going on on the cross there with Jesus than so wine and alcoholic content and all that kind of thing. Uh, I, it's never explained, Charles, so all we're left to is speculation on it. Uh, my best guess on this is that Jesus didn't want any numbing of the experience that he was going through because he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and he is bearing the full brunt of that 
that weight of sin on the cross, which we can't even fathom. We can't, we can't even explain it. So uh, that is about the best guess I can give, but I sure wouldn't die for it. I, it may be something else that was going on there yeah. with Jesus, that he wanted to remain conscious and actively experiencing this sin as the sin bearer. Great question. Uh, thank you, Charles. We've got time for one more. This is uh, my friend Jim calling in, and he said, I've been reading about Martin Luther and taking some courses in Lutheran theology. It seems theologians of today would have to eliminate about 85% of the Bible in order to make their point valid. No law, all grace. Have we gone too far in studying beyond what God intended beyond his Bible? Uh, Sometimes we always have to put things that are written by uh, theologians, pastors, and uh, uh, sermons and that type of thing. We always have to put it up against the standard of the scriptures. I like uh, going back to the book of Acts here where Luke commends the Berean church where uh, Paul was uh, spreading the gospel to these Jews in Berea. And uh, Luke says that the Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonian Jews because they eagerly received this word that Paul was uh, giving, but they also checked it against the Scriptures to see if it was true. And so that is the standard. I don't know about percentages, about half this and two-thirds of that being mistaken, but uh, I do agree with Jim that sometimes we get too enamored with what teachers say about the Scripture and don't get in there and study it for themselves. Mm -hmm. Our former uh, campus uh, chaplain here at Northwestern, uh, Dean Paulson, made a great statement once that stuck with me for years where he said, people usually know, uh, uh, people really don't know what the Bible teaches about a lot of things, but they know what they've been told. And that's a problem. We need to get in there and study the scriptures itself. That wraps up our show. Thank you to Dr. Mark Moscow. What a great hour. And I know we didn't get a chance to hear all Thanks for the listening. Get Programming like this time. is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.